I'm Allie. I'm Danny. And I'm Amy. And together we're the Cold Case Chronicles. Come hang out with us as we investigate unsolved crimes from across Indiana. We're sort of like The View, but with murder. Except we're funny and not political. Oh, and with some explicit language. Cold Case Chronicles can be heard on your favorite podcast app or by visiting coldcasechronicles.com. And as always, have the day you deserve. Especially if you're a murderer. I know your secrets and I'm telling on you. Everybody, this is Daniel. Oh, and this is Daniel. <laughs> and this is Carla. We are Hoosier Homicide, a true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Okay, here we are. What's up? I'm going to take my panty pack off. <laughs> oh, baby. <laughs> you know, this is reminds me of about the time when we got pregnant with Olivia. <laughs> started some started kind of like that too, you said. Let me take off my fanny pack. <laughs> someone could identify me in public by my fanny pack. <laughs> what? Someone could identify me out in the wild based on my fanny pack. You're yeah. not the only loser walking around no. wearing a fanny pack. Hey, no. I made it cool for a while. Like, I... No, you didn't. It's like you were wearing flannel shirts before it was cool. No, you didn't. You were. You would wear your flannel shirts all the time. Flannel's never gone out. That's true. That's true. Uh, you look very nice. Your eyes. I woke up like this. I woke up like you went to a wedding. That was fun, right? Yeah, I liked it. No, I woke up like this. You went to the Colts game. That was fun. Yes, it was. Let me tell you what all I've had to eat today. Oh no. <laughs> I had um half a chicken and two big things of mashed potatoes at Shapiro's. Cheesecake. Mm. And then at the game, I had a thing of popcorn, a little a pizza, mm-hmm. ice cream. I smell ice cream. And like four or five beers. So you're not really hungry for dinner. Yo, no, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I ate all of that to help soak up the alcohol. Understood. And it did. Very well. As well. And then <clears throat> we're sitting there and the Colts played like shit today. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's a little quiet. And my uncle looks over at me and goes, "You want to leave and just go back to my house and smoke some weed?" <laughs> and you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> he, you're like, you didn't want to wait till we were on people the jumbotron. Are like, people are like doing that thing where it's like they're trying to look without turning their heads. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> they can't good. arrest us for. Saying about it. what may or may not happen. Yeah, on the way home, you may not have gone to his house at all. In fact, I think you just came home and brought me cheesecake. I did bring you. You cheesecake. got cheesecake. I got cheesecake. That's okay. I had cheesecake on Friday. <laughs> I didn't like cheesecake. Um, turns out I do now. Oh my god, it's so decadent. But it I had it's like dense. a plain one. 
and mm-hmm. it was really I good. think I prefer plain unless it's like the Cheesecake Factory which we went to Barnes and Noble and she I was almost... like where's the cake because Barnes and Noble's is next to the Cheesecake Factory she knows where the Cheesecake Factory mm-hmm. is and what you do there mm-hmm. I almost think the cheesecake at Shapiro's just comparing plain cheesecake to plain, plain. cheesecake they have so many fancy kinds yeah mm-hmm. I like like triple chocolate fudge that kind of shit you know <laughs> what I'm saying Oh, man. That's like people that say, I like coffee. And it's like- Then they put three like, hazelnut creamers and a- uh, They put sugar, <laughs> 14 creamers. Yeah. Every, that's me every morning. One three night. hazelnut creamers and a Splenda. Okay, I can do that, yeah. I get it straight from the teat. It's black The as coffee teat. The coffee teat. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yeah. we have cold brew, and those are the best days. Oh, I love cold brew coffee. Our daughter knows it too. When you, get cold, when you get cold brew, though, it gives you diarrhea. Not all the time. Sometimes so, I mean, it makes yeah. me a little jittery and I have hope for 15 minutes. <laughs> and then it's gone. No, they have. <laughs> we have a, a supplier that comes in and, and hooks up to our tap. Oh, man. At work, yeah. Shit's good. Then people try to hide it. Oh, They're yeah. They're like, hey, there's cold brew. Okay. Don't tell anyone. Get some. I'm like. Bring out your jugs. Like, you can. There's cold brew. <laughs> like, okay okay you can go get some but don't tell anyone <laughs> well that's how you know they like you if they're yeah. telling you and i'm always like there's cb and the bd <laughs> it's cold brew in the building <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what happened when you were texting me you got home from this wedding oh yeah people were having sex in my living room in that you couldn't get into your house <laughs> they put the i don't know what you call that like extra lock that yeah it's like a top lock not a deadbolt was something it else. your roommate no but did they, they know your well roommate. okay so uh. cj came up to me at the bar and was like i let tyler go back with the girl to our house so just so you know okay. i was like okay i don't care and i didn't care until i opened the door and it i like unlocked it and it stopped because i have that like top lock mm-hmm. that you know like hotel rooms have mm-hmm. yeah and i opened it and i was like what the fuck <laughs> what the fucking fuck? And then I heard it was hee hee in there. <laughs> and then he came up and and I so I slammed it shut, waiting yeah. for him to come over and it took too long, which was probably a fourth of a second, and yeah. I opened it back up and I was like, This is my fucking house! <laughs> Let me in my goddamn house. And he was like, You have to shut the door so I can unlock it. And I opened it, and I was like, When it's your property, you can do that. <laughs> and then I went to bed. My motherfucking house. As the owner. I was just like, I texted CJ. I was not very happy. Yeah, you were nice. I was like, if you're going to let people come back here, they need to go to your room. Fucking your bed. Yeah. Yeah. You've ruined it for everyone now. Thanks, CJ. None of us can just go and bum buglies on Carla's couch. I guess that's like- When I get upset about stuff like this, I'm an asshole. Well, yeah. I just was, I was pretty drunk. You still text me really well when you're drunk. I think I was like super focused. Yeah. On like I was like probably this close to the laser phone, beam like, where the I can do this letters are crisscrossing. I can do this. <laughs> yeah, you did real well. Thanks. I was tired. I was about. I wanted to like stay up with you in this moment of encountering people on your bed. See, you told. Couch. It's not like I didn't know they were going to be there. Yeah, that would. be But weirder. it was like when I open unlock the door and it stops, and you're like, "What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck is going on here?" And I was like, "Open the fucking door." I was like, you can't do that here, man. <laughs> Oops. Oops. 
It's all good. I had time to cool off in my 14 hours in bed. Oh, yeah. You're like, I'm so tired. I was like, wait a minute. What have you been doing all day? Sleeping. Yeah. That's what I have to do now. To recover from drinking? Yeah, I have to sleep the whole day. Oh, you have that luxury, right? Anything else? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Jordan, who helped us with the last episode, The Love Letters, he did a lot of research. He's a Patreon member now, so we're really excited about that. Love you, hon. Thank you. I think he's gotten stickers, but if you want some more, I need your address again, because I don't keep these things, because I promise I don't stalk people. I will. This story looks long. It's two stories. Oh, my. A couple... Sheila. <laughs> Sheila wrote a new review for us. Your podcast is awesome. My favorite thing to do on Thursdays. Love you guys. Oh my God, funny. It's like a great conversation with friends over drinks, banter, humor, and subject matter. Love it. That's some ped. Hmm. That's a really good way to describe it. I like it. And that's it. That's our new tagline. Banter, humor, and subject matter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. On Instagram, books underscore and underscore pods. She writes a blog. And is a Hufflepuff. I think I am too. Come on. Hufflepuff. Have you taken the actual quiz? (laughs) Yeah, I think I am. Have you taken that? Your house quiz? Yes, I'm of the house Targaryen. Okay. (laughs) But anyway, she did a very nice review of us a little while back, and I hadn't been able to mention it until now, and I think I need to like share it again, but it's on her website, and I'll post a link to that in this episode. So, But she does a review of books too, which I need because I can never decide if there's a book I want to... Has she ever reviewed Harry Potter? Probably. I, don't I would know. guess. She got a lot. Yep, there's one in here. Yeah, Harry Potter. We don't need a critical review. I feel like it's review. a lot of the po- the books that I would read, too. Okay, so that's my story. I'm a Gryffindor. Oh, you are? Oh, for 100% sure. I'm a Hufflepuff. Okay. And I've taken more than one quiz. Oh, yeah. Okay, so this, remember a few, you guys don't remember, but I'm going to pretend like you do. A few episodes ago, we did like the cell block tango where it was several women that committed crimes in the 19-somethings. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That, so I did one, though, with its men this time, but I don't know. Boo. What, is it still cell block <laughs> tango? Like, what is it now with no... Just normal domestic violence against just women. Do, just domestic violence. It's normal. Okay. All this came from the book, The Notorious 92, Andrew Stoner, Stone, something like that. That's his name. He's an author, an important author. It's a huge book. A lot of this came Big from Big ass that. book. But all of it is, all his research then is composed of all the news articles, though, that formulated the story at the time. So it's from his book, but it's also like the Indianapolis Star or the Star or the Clarion or something. Are we ready? I'm ready. Ready. The story began on a quiet Tuesday evening in December of 1903. Carla, where were you in 1903? I usually look up where our relatives are, but I didn't have time to see what they were doing. I'm sure they were just hanging out. Hooking up waiting, and hanging out. Hooking up and hanging out. Waiting. Hanging out with their wings out. Yep. You know, waiting for the car to be invented. I don't know. <laughs> waiting for the car so I can get an Uber so I can drink and not drive. That's not what I meant. Oh, okay. okay. I said just waiting for the car to be invented. Yep. When was it invented? I think 1912. Okay. As 35-year-old Elizabeth Gillespie prepared the parlor of the home she shared with her mother for the regular meeting of the Women's Literacy Club. Oh, you women and wanting to read. Yeah, it was all... (laughs) We're learning our ABCs there. Before her guests arrived, however, a shot rang out and struck Elizabeth in the head behind her left ear. 
The shot also extinguished the oil lamp in the room, and Elizabeth's elderly mother, Margaret Gillespie, fumbled in the darkened room, crying out for her daughter, eventually finding her near death on the floor. Miss Gillespie is still alive, but is sinking fast, and the attending physicians give her but a few hours to live, reports the Indianapolis Star. And I don't know how they would report that so quickly if it just happened. Like, doesn't it take a while to set a newspaper? Mm-mm. I don't know. Uh, she has never regained consciousness since the tragedy. Police declared immediately that a strong chain of circumstantial evidence existed to charge a suspect that had been identified. Investigators didn't have to look far. Suspicion seemed to fall on in the cat in the hat <laughs> immediately on Elizabeth's twin brother, James Gillespie, whom he she had been estranged from for years. The goddamn twin. The twin. If he had hoped to avoid suspicion, his actions after his sister was shot did not help. Despite living across, just across the street, Poplar Street, from his sister's home, James... You no, know, Dwight Schrute had a twin. <gasps> it died in the womb, and he absorbed it. <laughs> now, he and now he has the strength of a grown man and, and a tiny baby. Yep. <laughs> uh, just across the street from his sister's home, James did not come outside to investigate the shot or the cries of his elderly mother for help although most of their neighbors nestled along the Ohio River did. So everyone heard the commotion and came out to see what happened, but he's like, I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear nothing. Did you hear that? I heard Nope. That. Elizabeth was well known in Rising Sun. Huh? Where's Rising Sun? In oh. We've done one before. That's a place. Yeah. It's, I think, a lot of- It's across I was like, the way from Setting Sun. <laughs> yeah. It's Southern Indiana, the one with like Daniels I was like, you or- have it mixed up. You have a sun sign and a rising sign, but not a sun, sun rising. <laughs> Danielle's are shady bitches. That was the episode from there. Or sun it- rising? Rising sun. Oh, it's um on the Ohio River as forementioned. How far is how? I mean, it's closer to Cincinnati than anything. Okay. It's probably only like a 30 minute drive into the Cite. All right. Well-known in Rising Sun and throughout the country as a leader among the women's social scene, active in the Presbyterian Church and other organizations, she was a well-respected woman, if not considered a spinster. The Star reported that she had shown a distinct religious bent ever since an unfortunate love affair 10 years ago that ended in a broken engagement for marriage. Elizabeth succumbed to her mortal wounds on the afternoon of December 10, 1903. Two gun wads were removed from her head by the coroner who declared her death a homicide in fact it was a hoosier homicide (laughs) i feel like i should be able to say that more often yes if these bloody wads prove to be 16 gauge the size of the shotgun in possession of james doubt will exist no longer in the minds of the people as the identity of the guilty man the indianapolis star declared Reports emerged that James and Elizabeth had stopped speaking to each other sometime in 1901 after the death of their father, Dr. William Glipsby Sr., a Civil War veteran and prominent physician in the community. James reportedly was angry that his father's will favored his twin sister. Hmm. Other siblings discounted that as the cause of the row between the two, noting that Dr. Glipsby's widow, who was still alive, was actually the primary beneficiary of the estate. After their fight, James moved across the street. I'll show you, motherfucker. I'll move across the street. (laughs) Uh, Into the home of his older sister, Mrs. Bella Seward. Mrs. Bella Seward, a widowed woman. So he moved out of one sister's house and into another sister's house. So was she a Seward? She was a real Seward. Seward, yeah. (laughs) S-E-W-A-R-D. A A bitch with a capital C. Yeah. S, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, I thought you meant C word. I'm like, huh? Hmm. Well, that's nice, Danielle. Did you write that yourself? She <laughs> might be a C word. I don't know. Uh, a hairy C word. Oh, no. The enmity grew, and the old-time love which had existed between Elizabeth and her brother turned almost to hatred, the Star reported. When Elizabeth died, James was summoned to appear before the Ohio County Grand Jury, but remained uncooperative with the investigation. He refused initially to deliver his gun as the subpoena from the court ordered, but eventually relinquished it. As the prosecutor questioned James in front of the members of the Grand Jury at the Ohio County Courthouse, he remained cool and unmoved. Too many people of this town are accusing me of murder, he said, and declined to answer any other questions. It's like, yes, that's why we're in the courthouse is because we <laughs> think you killed someone. So the accusations are poignant here. <laughs> uh, James and Elizabeth's older brother, Dr. William Glitzby Jr., was also ca called to testify, but he spoke only of his treatment of his sister's wounds. When reporters gathered to the courthouse, told Dr. Glitzby that his brother James was a prime suspect in the murder, he said, on that suspicion, you are altogether wrong. We will fight this to the bitter end. Rising Sun seems nice. Bitter. Bitter. I think it's really white trash. They have a casino. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. But I know Heather from Nature versus Narcissism knows about Rising Sun. I'll have to tell her to listen to this. A day later, disturbed by news reports that his brother had killed his sister over their father's estate, Dr. Gillespie issued a written statement saying, there was no difficulty in the family over my father's estate. In fact, his will was not drawn until he had consulted each of his legal heirs and found that they were not only willing but serious that the whole estate should go to my mother. He added, there was no estrangement over business troubles in the family at all. The estrangement was not due to any one cause, but to separate and distinct conditions, which were dot, 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 like dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Despite Dr. Glitzby's statement, news reports continue to refer to longstanding and deeply held resentments between the Glitzby children, all of whom were described as being quick to temper and having a reputation of being firm in their convictions. Reporters also seem fascinated that a set of twins could be enemies of any sort. The evil twin. Mm -hmm. it, it exists. Yeah. The ill feeling between the twins is considered remarkable by the medical fraternity, the Indianapolis Star reported. Twins are usually close to each other throughout life, and a case cannot be recalled when a twin has been known to have intentionally harmed the other, which I don't think that's true. I think twins would kill off the other one. Yeah, I bet it happens. You don't... There's. I mean, there's not a whole lot of it, though. No, I don't think it's common, but I... Was the thing though, if you're identical, you could get away with framing your twin for a murder you committed if your DNA is identical. Uh, There's an SVU on that. Oh. Other witnesses called before the grand jury included Myron and Carrie Barber, a married couple who shared the home across the street from Elizabeth with James and his older sister. So this is a couple that lived in the house with his older sister across from his twin sister on Poplar Street. So a bunch of people lived in the same house. Mrs. Seward <laughs> initially. Initially, Myron refused to answer any of the questions put before him until threatened with a stay in the county jail by the Ohio County Circuit Court Judge Downey. Investigators were interested in how the Barbers reacted as well as James. They believed a deep-laid plot involved as many as four people was, were behind Elizabeth's murder. Reporters also learned that Elizabeth may have known her life was in danger shortly before her murder. She told a friend, oh, I have troubles you know nothing about. Uh <laughs> but I was like, does that mean I know I'm going to be murdered? Woe is me. I have troubles. Troubles. As Elizabeth's funeral went forward on Sunday, December 13, 1903, at the Presbyterian Church in Rising Sun, two family members were noticeably in their absence, James Gillespie and the sister with whom he shared a home, Bella Seward. Among the pallbearers for Elizabeth's casket 
were the mayor of Rising Sun and the Ohio County Treasurer, two of the deceased woman's many friends. So she was well-liked, if not a spinster, at 35. So how old are you, Carla? 26. Okay. Close. Close. Or you've got time. One of the two? Hi. <laughs> Two days later, reporters in Indianapolis and Cincinnati began suggesting another new possible motive for Elizabeth's murder. Both reported heavily on a $3,000 life insurance policy James stood to gain by Elizabeth's death. The New York Life Insurance Company reported that Elizabeth purchased, Elizabeth purchased the policy in July of 1901 and paid five years in advance. The agent who sold the policy believed she bought it as an investment only. James was named recipient of the policy, it turns out, before he and Elizabeth fought and was never removed from it. Reports also zeroed in on the fact that while Elizabeth was active and popular in the many circles in Rising Sun, she was also viewed as a pious cunt and judgmental at times. A pious cunt? Yeah. That's what <laughs> I heard. <laughs> no, I said it. That's what I oh. heard. Yeah. Um, so she was you know, full of herself. Her life was devoted to social purity and misconduct on the part of others evoked from her severest condemnation. So it made her mad if she thought you were immoral. Yes. Well, shit. Ah, Yeah, we wouldn't have been friends. It may be said that she gave up her life because of her denunciation of what she considered an unpardonable transgression of social laws. So, and if she didn't like you, she could make all her friends not like you, too. One of those. Yeah, and then you would be like an outcast. As the media frenzy continued, grand jury testimony revealed that Carrie Barber held an intense hatred of Elizabeth Gillespie and held a hypnotic influence over James Gillespie. One witness reported that Carrie had struck Elizabeth twice with a broom handle before becoming angry at what Elizabeth told others about her alleged immoral behavior. Hit her with a broom. Carrie also had threatened to splash vitriol, also known as sulfuric acid, on Ah. Elizabeth's face to try and blind her permanently. No big deal. Carrie, she's crazy. Carrie Barber and Bella Seward were also called before the grand jury, but not before some excitement on the courthouse lawns. Photographers from Indianapolis and Cincinnati had arrived in town and attempted to take pictures of the two women as they appeared to answer questions. James reportedly attacked one of the photographers and and successfully blocked their view. The judge later refused his request that photographers be ordered to stop taking photos of the women. So this is becoming a new sensation. On December 21st, 1903, the grand jury ordered Elizabeth's body exhumed from the grave as she had held for just over a week. They ordered that all of the wads or bullet fragments in her head be removed and compared to James's shotgun. The only 16-gauge shotgun in Rising Sun. Well, well. (laughs) One-of-a-kind weapon. And if that person is killed by that one-of-a-kind weapon, it looks real bad. Yeah, that's poor planning. The next day, the indictment of four people for the murder of Elizabeth Gillespie was front-page news across Indiana, Ohio, and Kentucky. Indicted for murder were James Gillespie, 35, his sister Bella Seward, 48, and Myron and Carrie Barber, both 35. While Bella and James remained calm during the two-hour preliminary hearing, Myron appeared almost panicked at the charges. The two women were released on bond, but James and Myron were ordered held at the Ohio County Jail. Myron would eventually be granted bail, but James would not. Carrie Barber was an attractive woman described as possessing fiery eyes and a winning smile. Fiery. Didn't sound bad. And as a determined little woman who held a strange influence over James Gillespie. Suggested in news reports but not stated outright was that Carrie had engaged in a sexually intimate relationship with James, despite being married to Myron. Behind the whole affair is the story of hate and malice, said the star's unnamed correspondent. 
The jury is believed to have been told a story to the effect that Mrs. Barber bore intense hatred towards Elizabeth because she had accused her of improper conduct. So I can make all my friends not like you if I think you're a whore. And guess what? I don't like you. (laughs) The Indianapolis Star reported, It is a fact that for several years, Mrs. Barber has not mingled in society in this town. She has had only a small circle of women friends in Rising Sun. The social ostracism was attributed to Miss Gillespie, who was the acknowledged social leader in the town. She's an old mean girl. You can't sit with her. <laughs> She's an old mean girl. <laughs> James hired Captain John B. Coles to lead his defense, and in doing so, created a precedent in Indiana. Captain Coles' 23-year-old daughter, Cynthia Coles, was also an attorney and joined her father on the defense team and thus became the first woman to represent a murder defendant in an Indiana courtroom. It's a woman criminal defense attorney. It's the first time. And they just began reading the other day. I know. She's a fast learner. So when I read that, I had to look into that more. So I had to look that up. That might have a different source. I'll have to. I don't know the source. I'm going to have to put that on the website, guys. Full body chills. (laughs) Miss Cynthia Coles, by her work in the Gillespie case, has attracted the attention of the entire Indiana bar and fairly won her spurs as a criminal lawyer. A slim, girlish figure in a gray skirt and pink shirt came out to welcome me to the office of Coles and Coles. So this is a female reporter also. They came from Cincinnati to interview the new female criminal lawyer. But she acts shocked that there is a female lawyer representing a murder defendant. And it's like, yeah, but you're an anomaly too, a female reporter. Like, it's not as common. But she acts shocked by this. But that's different. (gasps) That's different. Mrs. Coles broke in with a laugh. She was mad there were two bitches in the courtroom that day that could read. Yeah, there should be one at a time. We'll gang up and overthrow the men. One reader at a time is allowed in the room. Miss Cole broke in with a laugh and a sly wink at her father. There will soon be no one in Rising Sun but lawyers and reporters if we don't get this case settled soon. What do you say, father? The real murder of Elizabeth Glitzby will never be found until the $1,000 fund set aside by Ohio County to prosecute the case has been exhausted, exclaimed Captain Coles hotly. It is corruption fund, which will seriously interfere with justice in the Glitzby case. That's right, nodded Miss Coles from her desk where she was busily preparing habeas corpus petition in the Glitzby case. Until the money is gone, no jury will agree in Rising Sun. Captain Coles, a white-haired veteran of the Civil War, is the senior member of the unique law firm. Cynthia Coles is a junior who does the routine work and tries cases before magistrate and attends to the probate work. Father and daughter are the best of chums. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Women lawyers are usually regarded as freaks, are they not? Miss Coles laughs in reply to the question, is the law a suitable profession for women? I can only answer for myself. It is the only profession for me. I was like, that's so nice. Over her father's desk hangs his daughter's diploma. Miss Coles is a graduate of the Indiana Law School, class of 1901. You see, we all work in Rising Sun at something or or another. After I graduated from high school in 95, 1895. I taught school, hoping to enlarge my horizon. I took charge of a school in Wisconsin. I taught there a year, reading law at night for my own pleasure. I wanted to be at home, and I didn't like teaching, so I decided to study law in earnest and help father. I had no idea of a career for myself. I had been used to writing wills and preparing briefs for father, and I thought I could could perhaps be of enough use to him to pay him for having me at home. So she wanted to move back home. She was like, 
I'm smart enough. I can just work for my dad. Now, I almost, as I'm reading this, and she's talking, she's about to talk about where she went to school. I'm like, I bet she was treated like fucking shit, like a woman in a man's world. And they don't want women there. They don't think we're smart enough or capable. And no. I, and I would. No. You, you just learned to read. <laughs> but I left this in because I was shocked at what she said about her in college. We made it up between us, and I was admitted to the bar five years ago. In Indiana, one only has to be 21 and of good character to be admitted to the bar. <laughs> it's like, okay. Well, those are still the rules. You have to be at least 21 <laughs> and of good standard in order to get into the bar. With your ID. Yeah. Um, then I entered the Indiana Law School. I was the only girl in a class of 35 boys, but I was so worried over examinations, I had no time to notice that until we were all the best of friends. I shall never forget my college days in the courtesy and the kindness of those boys. They treated me as one of themselves, and I had a voice in all the class meetings and college affairs. One of the boys, an artist, used to revel in his caricatures of me, which he distributed impartially in the classroom. So she made good boyfriends in law school, and you know, that she wasn't treated like shit, and they just let her be. Well, it sounds like a good batch of lawyers. Yeah, she's like, I'm just here to become an attorney. That's all, folks. It's all folks. She Miss Cole is a good fellow, a devoted daughter, and a scholar whose brains is no wise interfere with her enjoyment of a joke either on herself or another fellow. I dislike one branch of law extremely, said Miss Cole, discussing her profession, and that is divorce. I have had a few cases of that kind. It seems to me when one person takes another for better or for worse, it shows a streak of yellow to lay down on the contract. She would later represent herself in her own divorce. <laughs> <laughs> the Glitzby case has tired me out considerably, but I can't give up when I know Jim Glitzby is innocent. I have known the whole family since we were children, and it would be impossible for Jim Glitzby to do a wrong act, not to mention a murder. Why, he's a deacon in our church, the Presbyterian Church, and is marked by Calvinistic conscience. Man, I had one of those one time. Calvinist. <laughs> conscience, I don't know. When the first arrest, he told his my he told father a lie, and that is he made a mistake because he did not remember a certain fact, and he came to the office with tears in his eyes to confess. I am a member of the Women's Literacy Club, <laughs> to which Elizabeth Glipsby belonged. What I know of her convinces me that- This week's reading, The Cat in the Hat. <laughs> no, it's Room on the Broom here lately. Long ginger braid, the bow down her back. It all rhymes, the whole thing. What I know of her convinces me the family had no hand in her death. I think well clear, Jim, she declared. A man with a Presbyterian conscience would not commit murder and not tattle. So we'd have to confess if he did. James and Jim. So it's okay if you do it as long as you tell everyone. Yeah. James spent the holiday in jail while Christmas cheer abounded in most places in Rising Sun. He was peering from behind the bars. In May of 1904, James' case was finally called in Ohio County Circuit Court and ended on June 4th, 1904, with no verdict returned against him. An impaneled juror had failed to disclose he or she was actually related to James Gillespie. When you have a really small fucking town, I was like, well, I didn't know he was my cousin. How was I supposed to know? <laughs> and the equivalent of a mistrial was declared. A new trial was called for January 1905, and the state continued to use the 16-gauge 
gun as its strongest evidence against James. This time, he used the power of his family's name to secure U.S. Congressman Francis M. Griffith, Griffith of Veve, Indiana. Veve. Veve. Indiana. I don't know where that is. To lead his defense. Congressman Griffith, then Captain Coles, argued that the circumstantial evidence against James was not enough to convict. They also argued a conviction subjected him to jeopardy, presumably known as double jeopardy now, because of the aborted 1904 trial. Did he get it right? No. Double jeopardy is like when you're convicted of one thing and then they try to No, it's where you get the first crack to answer. (laughs) What was the stay-at-home dad was so bad at it last night? Stay-at-home dad from Indianapolis. Yeah, it was just like 2,000 in the hole. He like, I've never seen somebody just like hit the button and then be like, I have no fucking clue what the answer is. But I Sounds had like he was the nervous. Mm-hmm. The prosecutor attempted to match the prominence of Congressman Griffith in the courtroom by engaging State Senator William A. Kittinger of Anderson, Indiana, to the state's case. Kittinger told jurors, take all the evidence together, the motive of property, life insurance, the bitter hatred, the conduct of James, the statements of Bella Seward, Carrie Bar- Barber, and Myron Barber, and his guilt is shown beyond question. Jurors apparently agreed, taking just three hours to convict James Gillespie of murder and recommending a sentence of life in prison. Saturday morning, January 7, 1905, James was transported to the Indiana State Prison at Michigan City. Only a handful of townsfolk stood by to witness the spectacle as he left the jail. One man said, goodbye, Jim, to which he replied in a firm voice, goodbye, boys. Fuck (laughs) you. Goodbye, boys, all of you. I'll be back with you again. The Barbers and Bella faced separate trials on charges that were eventually reduced to being accessories before and after the crime. James's continued prominence apparently held, helped in the duration of his sentence. He was paroled from prison after only a little over two years in April of 1907. So life sentence became... He was rehabilitated. Yeah, in yeah, Michigan City. He returned to the Poplar Street home across from where his sister Elizabeth had been murdered and lived a quiet life for nearly four decades. In September 16, 1938, his name was once again on the front page, but this time for his own death. The Ohio County coroner ruled that James killed himself by placing a shotgun in his mouth and shooting himself on the back porch of his home. He was 72 years old. He left a note for the coroner that read, Coroner, I cannot bear the pain any longer. The notice of his death made no mention of his illustrious past and instead said he was a member of a well-known family in the community and had been a lifelong resident of this town. Huh. So if he killed his twin, he only did two years for it. I think that's pretty good. And I don't know if he got the three thousand life insurance money, and I don't know how much money that would be today, but I'm sure it's a lot. Three thousand dollars back then, mm-hmm. what it would be today. I'll do that now. There's a. Uh... There's no way to know. Yeah, there is. Why is this turkey quitting smoking? You need. Well, why do you think you should continue to yeah, smoke? Yeah, I like Danielle? smoked turkey. You said 1907. <laughs> 1907. Yes. Are you looking it up? Yeah. Inflation calculator. This bird is bird watching. I'm so confused. It would have been $91,000. Okay. I figured it'd be 3000 back then would be a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So almost a hundred grand type thing. Yeah. Okay. So that was the first part. Part two is shorter. Thank you all for your presence. Also from Notorious 92. Oh. All right. May 23rd, 1900. So about the same time. Two men en route from Evansville, Indiana, which is southern also. This is about mm-hmm. the same area. Okay. I'm feeling good about it. Evansville, Indiana, were startled to find the mostly nude body of a young woman floating in Pigeon Creek near the confluence of three Indiana counties, Gibson, Warwick, mostly and nude. Vanderburg. Mostly nude. 
She Define had... mostly nude because mostly nude today and mostly nude back then are two different things. Good point. She had on just a bow tie. <laughs> no, I think she had a corset on still because those are hard to get off. The body was soon identified as the 18-year-old Nora Kiefer of the tiny Warwick County village of Elberfelb, Indiana. Elberfelb, Indiana. I've never heard of that. I haven't heard of any of these places. I mean, it's near Evansville. Okay. She had been missing since she was last seen leaving her parents' home on April 3rd, 1900. Investigators worked quickly to try to provide answers to a most atrocious case in one of the most cold-blooded crimes ever committed in southern Indiana, as the Princeton Daily Clarion described it. A heavy stone was tied by a cord to the young woman's neck in an unsuccessful effort to keep her body from reaching the surface of the water. An examination of the body showed she had suffered numerous blunt force injuries to the head from an unknown object. The coroner reported her head was crushed on both sides and the upper jaw was broken. Despite the severe decomposition, her body was in rather good shape for having been dead for so many weeks. This view supported the suspicion that Nora's body had originally been dumped in a well at Elberfeld and then later moved to Pigeon Creek. Nora's father, Zachariah T. Kiefer, traveled to Evansville Mortuary to identify his daughter's body. He had last seen her alive walking away from his home near a towpath leading to a bridge that crossed the creek where she was found floating in. Just a day later, police arrested Joseph D. Keith, described as a well-to-do farmer and real estate dealer. The Daily Clarion told its readers, There were many circumstances which formed a strong chain of evidence indicating Joseph's guilt. It was known around Elberfeld that Joseph had been intimate with the girl and had been threatened with a seduction suit. What? Although himself a man of family, Joseph was well known to be of poor disposition. A reporter added it was not put above him to do away with a girl rather than to to pay her any money. What is a seduction suit? Uh, I don't know, but you better be lucky such thing doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) No, I don't think it does. And maybe in a couple states. Also known as a seduction tort, an unmarried woman could sue on the grounds of seduction to obtain damages from her seducer if her consent to sex was based upon his misrepresentation. Initially, the tort of seduction was a remedy for a father's property interest in his daughter's chastity. So you sullied up something that I hold a lot of value in. So I'm going to sue your ass for it. However, the damages to which the father would be entitled were based on the father's loss of the working services of a daughter, much as a master could sue if a third party caused injury to his servant that rendered the servant unable to work. Because she was seduced and debauched the, and became pregnant because of the non-marital sexual activity, the tort of seduction was one of the most common civil actions toward the end of the 19th century, and fathers were often successful before juries. So you just had to prove that he, I don't know if it's like they were going to get engaged and he tricked her into sleeping with him and is what you would say. And then he broke off the engagement. And I think there was even another thing for that. Another lawsuit, like balmy hearts, something. The guy that started the Indy 500, he was sued with something like this, a seduction, something similar. Oh, yeah. Because he had one girl and then turned around and married another girl the next day. When he was engaged to someone else. So she's like, fuck this shit. She's pissed. Oh, Carl Fisher. Yeah. In the 20th century, the action was criticized as maintaining property interest in humans. So like what I like, it's a ser- if you were a servant. So the daughter is considered property to her father. And, it, and we don't like that very much. And the tort was recast to recognize personal injury to the woman rather than solely deprivation of a father's property right. 
Most jurisdictions granted the victim the right to sue in her own name. Fathers could still sue as well on the ground that they had a moral interest in their daughter's chastity. This is really weird. But I think they got rid of it, not because it should be a legal matter, like women should be able to press charges for rape and sexual assault. It was like, no, no, no. We don't want these men to get taken advantage of because women could fake it, that they were and falsify seduction claims. We don't want that to happen to the good men of our society. Oh, God. <laughs> so it wasn't so much about women being humans. Investigators said a letter sent to Nora's mother six weeks before her body was found claimed to place the young woman in Chicago on a previously unannounced trip. If the letter was meant to fool Nora's parents who worried terribly about her whereabouts, it didn't work. Written in red ink, the note read, Dear Mother, I start this evening for Chicago with a friend on a trip. I may be gone three months and might six. Do not be uneasy about me from your daughter, Laura, instead of Nora. Hmm. That it was signed Laura rather than Nora tipped off her parents that it may have been written by the only person they knew who had ever called their daughter Laura, Joseph Keith. Further pointing to Joseph was the fact that his 16-year-old son, Jesse, told police he had taken a note from his father to Nora, as he had done before, on the afternoon of April 3rd, 1900 that said he wanted her to meet him on a bridge over Pigeon Creek. This was the last to- last time Nora was ever seen alive. He's, he's dating an 18-year-old girl and has a 16-year-old son. Like That's weird. That is weird. That's weird. Joseph's buggy was seized by investigators the day after he was arrested. It was found to be freshly painted despite the winter snow. It's the best time to paint your buggies in the winter. Absolutely. That's when I always paint mine. <laughs> <laughs> a rug on the base of the buggy was confiscated and later determined to be carrying a great deal of blood. Joseph told police it was blood from meat he had purchased from a local butcher. You really can't use that excuse anymore, can you? Um, no, there's still butcher shops. Hmm. Investigators believe it was Nora's blood. Joseph, despite being a respectable local businessman, did not seem to help himself when he at first told detectives that he hired a peddler. From outside the area to take Nora away and abandon her. He later confessed under questioning that the story was not true. So he's like, well, I paid someone to pick her up and take her out of town. Not bring her back. <laughs> they're like, no, that's not true. Okay, not true. The trial for Joseph Keith opened on January 1st, 1901 at Princeton, Indiana. An early witness was Nora's father, Zachariah, who insisted the body he had seen at the mortuary was that of his daughter. Nora's mother, Mary, also testified about the clothing that Nora wore the last day she was seen, some of which was recovered with her body, including a new corset still on her bloated, decomposing body. Mary Kiefer said that, uh, Mary Kiefer, I don't know if it's Kiefer or Kiefer, said that Joseph had neither visited their home before November 1899. After that, she said he always came to their house on some sort of business, but his visitations became more and more frequent several times a week, and he always asked for or about Laura. The name he called Nora. So he just call her by her goddamn name. You know? That'd be too easy. On his last visit on April 2nd, 1900, Mary said they discussed the fact that Nora was preparing to marry a young man she had been dating. Other witnesses confirmed that Joseph had paid a boarding house bill and other expenses Nora had run up during a few brief stays in Evansville. In the weeks Nora was missing, rumors apparently grew about Joseph's alleged involvement and he was actively seeking to stop the rumors. Willie Butcher of Warwick County testified that Joseph confronted him twice about alleged rumors he was spreading, placing Nora and Joseph together on the bridge over the creek. He said there was a right smart of talk around about me telling him that he said he wanted it bluffed down or what it would cause him trouble, Butcher said. He's a hillbilly, I decided. (laughs) 
I, I talked to him about about a week before and he was arrested. The conversation was like that one. He told me he was about to get in trouble about this old man, Kiefer. Said he wanted to, to, to talk bluff down. Butcher said also Joseph alleged Nora was in Evansville at a sporting house, which I'm guessing is a brothel type thing, a sporting house. Really? And that she'd been lying on him and that she was going to bring a suit against him. Joe Duffy, a friend of Joseph's son, Jesse, said he talked to Joseph on May 20th, 1900, three days before Nora's body was found. He asked me if I had heard anything about him and Nora, replied that I had heard some. Joseph said it was all a lie and said he... He'd make someone pay for it, Duffy testified. He added that Joseph told him if she had lied about people around Evansville like she has done around Elberfeld, she's liable to be killed and thrown in a river. Oh. Oh, no. Lucy Greer, a local resident, testified she saw Nora on the bridge near sundown on April 3rd and that she was pacing back and forth there as if waiting for someone to arrive. Prosecutors also called Philip Scora, an Evansville jeweler, and pawnbroker who said he sold Joseph Keith a $3 gold ring in the early spring of 1900 and that Joseph had asked him to tell the young woman with him, who was later identified as Nora, that the ring cost $10. So I just tell her it costs more money. <laughs> Philip said Joseph told him he was having some trouble with a girl and he wanted her to think that he thought a great deal of her by buying a $10 ring. Philip said he refused to lie to the woman and said nothing. So he's not going to lie for you to make your ring look nicer than what it is. Yeah, don't. <laughs> Harry Vogue's the night desk at the Hotel Richmond in downtown Evansville was also subpoenaed and testified that Joseph had a young woman he later learned was Nora and had registered at his hotel on December 13, 1899 as J. Smith and wife, Princeton, Indiana. He said the couple stayed in room 18 of the hotel for two days. Prosecutors presented the hotel res- register as evidence. 16-year-old Jesse Keith was called to testify against his father as well. I took a note to Nora. Papa gave it to me when I was at school, and Papa called me out. He said he wrote it on a piece of paper, and he got out of his pocket using a lead pencil. He told me to take it to Kiefer's and give it to Nora. Told me to give it to no one else. Jesse said he did as he was told. After delivering the note, he didn't go back to school. <laughs> so your parents <laughs> could just, like, roll up to the schoolhouse and they're like, come here. And get you out of school. <laughs> and he was like, I'm not going back after, after that. Jesse reluctantly admitted he had read the note before delivering it to Nora. He said it read, Nora, meet me at the barn about dark. Prosecutors pressed Jesse, asking if the note actually said bridge instead of barn. He goes, I thought it said barn, but I couldn't made it, couldn't make out the word. That's all I remember about the note. It might have said, I want to see you on some business, Jesse replied. The Daily Clarion reported most of the most pathetic and most sensational scenes of the trial occurred when Zachariah Kiefer was recalled to the stand. Nora's father wept bitterly as he retold the fact that he had talked to Joseph Keith on May 13, 1900, a little over a month after Nora had disappeared. He said Joseph volunteered at one point in the conversation. I understand you got another letter from Nora. Mr. Kiefer said he told Joseph, I replied that I had not and never had gotten a letter from her since she went away. Joe told me he heard it talked about the way around the neighborhood. Mr. Kiefer said Joseph continued telling him that he had heard his daughter planned to sue him for 1500 on a charge of seduction. I asked him if he had anything to do with the girl, and he said he had not. Then he told me my daughter was of loose character, that the boys in the neighborhood were running around with her, that they would go to her window at night, peck on the glass, and crawl into the house when she raised the window. I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> she's like, oh, by the way, your daughter was a whore, too. Sorry, she's dead. Damn. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> News reports in, 
indicated that at this point, Mr. Kiefer broke down completely, sobbing like a heartbroken child using a large red handkerchief. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Rebecca Harding, Joseph's, Joseph Keith's aunt, admitted she had ill feelings for her own nephew in her testimony about a visit she had with him in jail in which he said, she broke my peace at home. She was getting away with all my money and something had to be done. Rebecca said she told her nephew that he ought to acknowledge the court if he was guilty, and he didn't reply. Joseph's defense consisted, consisted almost entirely of a series of character witnesses, local officials, and others who had real estate and other business dealings with him. All testified to their knowledge he was an upright and reasonable citizen, which means you could never murder anyone if you're upright and reasonable. Of course. Joseph's wife of 17 years, Jenny Keith, also testified and said her husband had never been away from their home overnight and was never involved with another woman. She denied earlier statements she made to a coroner's inquest that her husband had been away from their home on the evening of April 3rd and did not return until after the rest of the family had retired for the night. Someone's lying for their husband. On Monday, January 7th, 1901, Joseph Keith took the stand in his own defense and admitted he had been in Evansville with Nora but denied any sexual involvement with the woman. He attempted to show he had taken her to a boarding house in, Evan in Evansville in order to help her out, but that the boarding house operator later tried to sue him because Nora had caused trouble there. I went to the boarding house to see about the matter. I told the operator that I thought she was putting up a scheme to get a little money out of me. See? <sighs> oh, my God. Ugh. Joseph testified. He admitted he then paid a total of $150 to settle the complaint. He denied telling Nora's father that she was planning on suing him for seduction, but did say he had heard rumors about himself and Nora in the area and that concerned him greatly. Although prosecutors had presented a highly circumstantial case, jurors found Joseph D. Keith guilty of murder on January 11, 1901, and fixed his sentence at death. As he was being led back to the jail, Joseph told a reporter from Daily Clarion, I'm not surprised at the verdict, but I am innocent or I would never endure the ordeal in this way. I am confident I will yet vindicate myself. He and his lawyers were back in court a few weeks later arguing for a new trial alleging misconduct by three jurors who allegedly formed and expressed opinions about his guilt before the trial was concluded. Each of the three jurors were called and each was like, no, nah, man, we just convicted him at the end, not halfway through. No, man. No. Joseph himself testified for more than 40 minutes, starting off with, I am absolutely innocent of the crime charged against me. Joseph was able to get out before he began to sob. Honorable judge, is it possible that any man in my hearing would believe that I would willfully destroy my peaceful and happy home by killing a girl whom I had no malice and thereby destroying the hopes of ever meeting my dear old mother in heaven? Like, yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> After two days of testimony on the appeal, Gibson County Circuit Court Judge Oscar M. Wellborn overruled the appeal, citing no known reason for witnesses, including a member of Mr. Keith's family, to lie against him and the fact that Joseph had made incriminating statements or at least partial confessions to detectives. He said Joseph's execution would go forward. His wife, Jenny, did not give up on her husband and continued to circulate petitions and write letters on his behalf. His attorneys petitioned the Indiana Supreme Court on his behalf, but the higher court did not act on the case. Unless the unforeseen happens, Joseph Keith will meet his death on the scaffold shortly after midnight Thursday night, the Evansville Courier reported. It is believed Mrs. Keith is at her home near Elberfeld and that she had abandoned hope of asking the governor to save the life of her husband. The wife of the condemned man has spent her fortune trying to save him from the gallows and is not able to go to Michigan City to bid her loved one a last farewell. Joseph D. Keith was hung on the gallows at Indiana State Prison in Michigan City on November 15th, 1901. The gallows. The gallows. 
I think there was more evidence in the other guy's case that owned the only gun in the city that was 16 days. Yeah, you think that would do it. he got two years in prison. And this guy is just like, he was probably, you couldn't prove that he did it. Just that he was always with her. And he probably wasn't happy getting sued by her. But that's still like circumstantial. But back then, they didn't need as much proof. I think that if they had a thought in their mind of how they wanted it to go, they could make it happen. Yeah. And they had so many witnesses. They're like, yeah, he's a dick. Like, yeah, he was with her. Yeah, he was there. Yep. It was, yep. Even his own aunt is like, he's a fucking dick. I don't like him none. I don't like him none, ma'am. Oh, so I needed it to be longer because I knew I wasn't going to have any audio clips or time to put in. What? In you don't have audio clips from 1908? <laughs> no, no, I don't. <laughs> so I needed it to be long enough not to rely solely on audio clips like I do for some of our Patreon. Patreon? Mm-hmm. Patreon? See Patreon. So I like the older cases sometimes. I know those are a lot of legal terms because that's how they keep records, though. It's either the news reports or like, you know, legal writings down papers. And I like that it was the first, the first case was a first female criminal defense attorney in the state. Boom. Boom. I like that. Boom, baby. What's for dinner? Nothing. He's, he's got food on the mind. I know. I don't know, man. I want I some. There was no time to make food today. Okay, well then. You had time to fine. make cookies? Pick somewhere and go through a drive-thru. Okay. Hey, bitch. You had time to make cookies? Hey, bitch. Because yeah. she made me. You know, the cookies were like already made. You only had to add two she eggs and a you. stick of butter. Yes. She made you. She found She Listen, found the gun and I've had a sick held kid. it to you. At home with me, bored. Like, she's not sick enough to feel sick, so she's bored. She'll I go, like ah. that, because you could still skip school. I know, but she does, <laughs> she's skipping school, but it's, she doesn't know it, that she can't go tomorrow. She's like, I'm bored. I was like, you're supposed to be bored. You're sick. I don't feel sick. And I was like, I know. You have a fever, damn it. Gross. Gross. Kids are little Petri dishes. Ew. Germs. Bacteria. Ew. Yes. So, two Patreon episodes should be out, hopefully. They'll be out before this comes out. But if you want to go find them, go to our Patreon. Backslash Who's Your Homicide for a dollar a month. Backslash Who's Your Homicide? Is it backslash? I don't know. Yeah, I think Forward it is. slash? Fuck if I know. The slashes go one way or the other. Try them both. Let me know which one works. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's a link in the show notes for this. There's a link to all our stuff with Patreon and merchandise and all that fun shit. I honestly could look at, you could put both the slashes next to each other and I wouldn't know which is which. I don't know either. Oh no! Our sh- a shirt I ordered for myself from T Public though I really like it, like the quality of it with the- one of our logos on it. Mm-hmm. Just so people know, I'm I'm pleased with it. Washing and drying because we're there's no very few things in this house can survive not going through the dryer. I like to be like, oh, I got to hang that up every time. No, it it's been dried several times. And I still like it. Yeah, I think that's it. Tell them where to find us on Instagram the and Twitter. Cosmos. At <laughs> <laughs> uh, Who's Your Homicide and um. Uh, Facebook. You can like yeah. us on Facebook, and then MySpace. MySpace. Um, you can look at our Zanga. <laughs> What's a Zanga? A Zanga. <laughs> what is it? You don't know what it is. You didn't have a Zanga? No. Did you? Of course. I had one. What is it? I don't really know how to tell you. Is it's it social like, media? It was like a MySpace, but better. Really? Nothing was better than MySpace. No, I don't know. You it had more to do with like code, so oh, okay. your designs were like kind of unique. I don't know. Oh, I remember hacking into the code on MySpace though to like get rid of advertisement stuff in the code. Yeah, and then that we have a website and like an email address, and then we're on all those other places. The website is like super important because that's where I put my sources. 
reference things. If it's I've, super if important if you give a shit about word that. For word, Full body chills. Oh, I plagiarized the phrase. Now we're that's trademarked. You can't say that. We're in trouble for that. Is it? No, I don't know. Probably. <laughs> Anyways, that's where all that shit lives. So don't get mad at me. And you can't get mad at Daniel and Carlo because they know not what they do. <laughs> and for honest to goodness, stay out, out of the, the corn. corn. Popcorn. Popcorn sounds good. <laughs> I have some in there. I found a squeaky toy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who got that? For? Mom, I think, got her. That mom would get her something almost like equivalent of a dog toy. Same thing. Yep. Reverend Jim Jones, cult leader who orchestrated the deaths of 900 of his followers. What does his son have to say 40 years later? H.H. Holmes, one of America's first serial killers. Have you ever wondered if you're related to someone like that? Hear from the man who found out he was. And still at large, a killer of two Delphi, Indiana girls, Abby Williams and Libby German. Hear from the last person to see them alive in her own words. No scripts all Hoosier. Just honest facts from an experienced journalist and the conversations with people who know these crimes intimately. And you can only hear it on Infamous Indy with me, Joe Malillo. Just search Infamous Indy on your favorite podcasting app. Oh, and by the way, if you want to see my sources, they're free at infamousindy.com. And as I always say, stay safe.